0: Wednesday, September 12, 2012, episode 16 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. One of the NFL 2012 season is officially in the books and we are here to talk about it all and then some. Episode number 16 of the Football Nation Today podcast with yours truly, Alex Reamer, available, of course, right here on footballnation.com and if you're downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows offered right here on footballnation.com in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. It was a big week for us here at footballnation.com as I'm sure you probably expected Opening week of the NFL kicked off last Wednesday night with the Giants and Cowboys, and NBC carried on over to this past Monday night with Chris Berman calling the late game between the Chargers and the Raiders. Oh, if I had a dime every time Berman laid that on me, I'd be a rich man. And uh, yes, my ears are still bleeding from listening to Chris Berman call that game. Thank you for asking. Hopefully, your ears have begun a quicker recovery than my have, and the great and the mine have. And the great thing is. Week 2 of the NFL begins tomorrow night on the NFL Network. Thursday night football every week this season. It is the Green Bay Packers' home opener. They take on one of their divisional rivals, the Chicago Bears. Some words already flying in that matchup. Should be a great game tomorrow night. Something you can seldom say about the Thursday night matchups. Uh, What are we talking about today? Episode 16, Football Nation Today podcast. The better question is, what aren't we talking about? This is a show that covers all 30 NFL teams. Obviously there are going to be teams and storylines we spend more time discussing, but if you feel a storyline is being slighted, if you feel a team, possibly even your favorite team is being slighted, being left out here. As always, this is an interactive forum. That's what a great thing, that's a great thing about a podcast how interactive it can be. Feel free to leave a comment on the show page on the show page on footballnation.com. Send me an email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Hit me up on Twitter if you wish. At alexreamer one is my Twitter handle. Uh, I want the show to be interactive. As, I said, as I've as i said, ad nauseum, it's difficult to cover all 30 NFL teams equally. I'm not going to pretend to do that. So if there's a team, a storyline you want to hear discussed that has not been discussed to your liking, drop me a line anywhere on the interweb, and uh, I'll do my best to make it happen because I want this show to be entertaining to you the listener. Because if it isn't, what the hell are we doing here, right? And as I said last week on the show, in the 2012 NFL season preview, the goal of this podcast is to provide interesting points to you. Hopefully you find them interesting. I find them interesting at least. Uh, Thought-provoking commentary, if you will. Some hard opinions. I'm going to be wrong a lot. Sometimes I'm going to be right. But that's okay. Because what fun is it debating if nobody takes a side? So that's what we're going to do throughout the season here. We're going to react from the previous week's action. I look forward to the next week's action. We're going to interview guests as well regularly on the show, get their input on the uh, past week in the National Football League. So it should be a good show, a place uh, you come to listen to if you want hard-hitting opinions hard analysis, someone who actually says something, and hopefully if and hopefully you get some uh, interesting points out of the show that you can take the cubicle next door to you and, you know, brighten up your midweek. Or uh, wherever you may listen to this show, hopefully it brightens you up because, uh, well, I like to give you happiness or at least entertain you. So let's talk football, right? First down coming up next. As always, we'll do our first down, second down, third down, and fourth down segments Starting in first down, five things I learned from week one. Yep, one week in the books. I can already draw conclusions, and then five things we're we're looking forward to off of week one, heading into week two. It's Football Nation Today with Alex Reamer, back in a moment. So one week of NFL football is in the books, and I've already learned five things. That's right, five things... I have already learned from week one, number one, Peyton Manning, is back. He had a spectacular performance on Sunday night for Denver, going 19-26, to 253 yards, two touchdown passes as well, and the Broncos' 31-19 win over the Steelers. Uh, the 80-yard touchdown drive in the second half when tight end Jacob Tammy caught the touchdown pass was a thing of beauty, incredibly impressive. Uh, Manning's arm strength is not quite there yet. I suspect the arm strength will get better over time as the season progresses and that arm gets loosened up. But what impressed me most about Peyton Manning on Sunday night was that his mind has not lost a step. There he was, a new playbook, calling audibles like he was with the Indianapolis Colts just a few short years ago. Manning seemed to have a tremendous command of the Denver playbook. He knew where his receivers were going to be at all times. That throw to Demarius Thomas over the middle, a thing of beauty. I know, not an overly difficult throw to make, but for a quarterback, especially a new quarterback and a receiver to hook up like that, is frankly a thing of beauty. Not to sound too sappy about it, but... Really, Peyton Manning's mind is there. His mind did not lose a beat. And it's easier said than done for a quarterback, even one as talented mentally as Peyton Manning, to sit out for an entire season, come back his first regular season game back against a good, hard-hitting defense in the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, by the way, you know, they weren't playing uh they weren't playing a Lamb out there. They weren't playing St. Louis or something. No, they were playing Pittsburgh, one of the elite defenses in the AFC. Um And Manning shredded him up for 31 points, two touchdown passes, 80-yard touchdown drive in the second half as well. Um, He didn't lose a beat, and it's easier said than done. Uh, The mental game did not leave Peyton Manning, and that, to me, is the biggest positive to take out of the game. The arm strength was good, wasn't great, but it will be there. But the mental game is sharp from week one, and the mental game, obviously, will only get better. As hard as that may be to imagine as the weeks progress here. And that's what separates the elite quarterbacks from the very good ones. Especially in today's NFL. So many guys put up impressive statistics. Hell, Tavares Jackson. Yes, the Tavares Jackson was a 3,000-yard passer last season. It's not just about the statistics. Especially in today's league. It's also about the mental preparation. It's about how a quarterback handles the mentally tough situations. It's about how well a quarterback knows an offense. How well a quarterback can call an audible at the line of scrimmage. The mental game is what separates the elite QBs from the very good ones in today's NFL. And there are a lot of very good ones today who put up a lot of very good stats. And Peyton Manning will be right there with the rest of them. But he hasn't lost his mental edge. That was apparent on Sunday night, and that's why after just one game, I can tell you, Peyton Manning is back, or pretty damn close to it. The Eagles, on the other hand, are in for another rough season. They did win 17-16 to on Sunday over the Cleveland Browns, but they barely eked out a victory against a wretched Cleveland team that was starting a litany of rookies on defense. That was featured a quarterback, Brandon Whedon, who had a QB rating of five. That's right, five. And the Eagles barely eked out a victory in the winning moments of that ballgame. Mike Vick threw four interceptions, four interceptions, including a late pick six by Browns linebacker D. Jackson that at the time seemed to ice the game for Cleveland. The Browns also sacked Vick many times on Sunday and repeatedly got him under pressure. The offensive line did not do a good job of protecting Mike Vick. And if the Eagles cannot protect Vick, if they cannot have pass rushers stay out of the backfield, that offense is going to be a mess. Because they still don't trust Mike Vick to make the right decisions when he's on his feet moving around in the pocket. Especially now that he's entering his mid-30s, Mike Vick needs to be more careful. And I'm not sure if mentally he's going to allow himself to do that. I think Mike Vick is a guy who still today relies on instincts more than anything else. The biggest key to the Eagles season is Mike Vick's health. And it's going to be awfully difficult for Mike Vick to stay healthy if he faces the amount of pressure that he did yesterday uh, this weekend against Cleveland. A subpar defense. A very subpar defense, I might add, and the Eagles offensive line couldn't even protect him then. If the Eagles offensive line can't protect Vic against the Cleveland Browns, how are they going to protect Vic against DeMarcus Ware? Or against Jason Pierre-Paul and Justin Tuck? How is that going to work out? Not well. Eagles eked out a victory on Sunday afternoon, but they made a litany of mistakes. Vic threw four picks. He was under pressure all game long. Bad job by the offensive line. Eagles should have blown the Browns out on Sunday. They should have come out and made a statement. And they didn't. They barely survived. Not a great start to the season for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, The Raiders absolutely suck. Again. (laughs) Shocking, right? Uh, the Raiders lost 22-14 to the Chargers this past Monday night and the replacement long snapper Travis Gothel uh, could not snap the ball. He fired two ground ball snaps on the infield portion of the field out there in Oakland and an on-target snap resulted in a blocked punt. A quarterback Carson Palmer rarely looked downfield. The Raiders passing game was anemic, at least from my perspective. As Sean Phillips was in the backfield he had three sacks for the Chargers that's a positive sign for San Diego Sean Phillips played a great game on, on Monday Night, uh, but the Raiders did not. They appeared to be a total mess on special teams. The passing game was a mess. Yes, Jacoby Ford's out. Yes, they're dealing with injuries on the receiving front, but man, Carson Palmer didn't look downfield. Darren McFadden was their leading receiver. He struggled rushing the ball, though. Uh, the Raiders were a total mess. Again, on Monday night, and the thing with Oakland, doesn't matter who the coach is, doesn't matter who the quarterback is, doesn't matter who the long snapper is, doesn't matter who the coordinators are, does not matter. Week in and week out, they are the less prepared team. And in this league, if you are the less prepared team, if you do not pay attention to details, if you do not win special teams, if you do not win the turnover battle, you're going to lose a lot of games. As the Raiders have since their last Super Bowl appearance in 2002. It's going to be another long year for Oakland, and Monday night is just the first inclination of that. Same old, same old for that bunch in the Bay Area. Contrast the Raiders, though, with the Patriots, who always pay attention to detail, and as a result, almost always win in the regular season. Since 2002, when Tom Brady took over as the everyday quarterback for the Patriots, they are 18-3 and after bye weeks and in-season openers. When you give Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots extended time to prepare, they will win. Almost at a 95% clip, 18-3 and since 2002 after bye weeks and in-season openers. And here in the greater Boston area, we do take it for granted. That week in and week out, the Patriots are always the most prepared team. But then you watch a game like Chargers-Raiders on Monday night, and you see the abomination that the Oakland Raiders' game plan is, year in, year out, week in, week out. And it makes you appreciate what we watch here in New England on a weekly basis with the Patriots. They are always the most prepared team. They never let up. The Giants went on a terrific run to end the year last year, but they started 7-7. Seven and seven. They lost a lot of games they should have won. The Patriots will never have those hiccups in the regular season. They will never have a bad week on the road in Seattle. They will never have a hiccup at home against an Arizona. They win the games by and large at a 95% clip that they're supposed to win. And we take it for granted here in New England, but then you watch a team like the Raiders, and it makes you appreciate what you have to watch. And I think the Patriots also made a huge statement against Tennessee. Because they look to be a more complete team than they've been in years. After last season's week one win with the Patriots in 2011, I sat back and said, yep, they won. They're going to win a lot of games this season, but did I learn anything new about this team? And the answer, last September around this time, after the week one blowout against Miami, was no. I hadn't learned anything new about the Patriots. Tom Brady still aired the ball out all over the field, but the secondary gave up a few big plays. There was no running game to speak of. It was the same old, same old. The Patriots had not changed. This week... After watching the game on Sunday, I can confidently say the Patriots have changed. They are a more complete team now than they've been in years. I would make the argument maybe since 2004. I certainly know this front seven is the best it's been since 2004. You can make an argument for 2007, but I'll go back to 2004. I think the 4 defense was a better defense than the 7 defense, especially the front seven. It wasn't all on Tom Brady. This past Sunday. It wasn't. A lot of people like to talk about the running game. Steven Ridley rushed for 100 plus yards, and that's great to see. Brady's in his mid 30s. It'd be great if he wouldn't have to air it out 35 to 40 times per game. And it looks like that may not have to be the case this season. But that's less of a big deal to me, even the running game. It was great to see. I love seeing Ridley bust out for 100 plus yards. But that's almost like the cherry on top. The biggest deal for the Patriots is that their defense finally made big plays that turned the tide of the game. The Patriots forced three Titan turnovers. The hallmark, of course, was a Chandler Jones strip of Jake Locker. And then Dante Hightower recovered it for a touchdown. At that point, the Patriots made it, uh, what was it then, a 14-3 game? Astronomically different than the previously score. Obviously. Uh, Also, Tavon Wilson, rookie uh, safety. Got an interception. Kyle Arrington batted the ball up. It did kind of fall to Wilson. But still, Tavon Wilson was there around the ball making a play. That's something a lot of new Patriot cornerbacks, safeties had not done in recent years. They haven't been around the ball. Tavon Wilson was around the ball on Sunday. And it resulted in interception at one point. Gerard Mayo leveled Nate Washington. Big hit out of the middle linebacker. A big impact play for Mayo. Who's been incredibly solid throughout his NFL career, but has lacked a proclivity to make the big plays, to make the big hits. And he leveled Nate Washington. It resulted in a Titans fumble. The run defense was phenomenal. Chris Johnson was held to four measly yards on 11 carries. Kyle Love and Vince Wilfork especially were dynamite on the interior. The Patriot defense, the front seven especially, made terrific plays. And a guy like Tavon Wilson was around the ball, which is also encouraging. In the Chandler Jones strip, followed directly by Dante Hightower, recovering the ball and scoring it for a touchdown, massive game-changing defensive play. A play that the Patriots had not received from their defense in a long time. And their defense now with Jones and Hightower has the potential to make those kind of plays week in and week out. In today's NFL, you can win without a running game. When the Packers won the Super Bowl in 2010, they only ran the ball 11 times. James Starks, with all the carries there, household name, nope, not really. You can win without running the football. You cannot win, though, without a defense that doesn't make big plays. You cannot win without a defense that does not put pressure on the opposing quarterback. And the Patriots now look to have that kind of defense, with Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower leading the way. Robert Griffin III went 19 of 26 with 320 yards and two touchdowns and a Redskins 40-32 victory at New Orleans this week. The 88-yard play to Pierre Garçon is what everybody is talking about, and rightfully so. We all love big plays, but I was most impressed with Griffin's decision-making. He wasn't too eager to run. He would roll out, look at all his options, and finally, if nobody was open, he would tuck it under and run. But unlike Mike Vick earlier in his career, and I would argue even still now in his career, Robert Griffin is not run first, pass second. He is pass first, run second, which is what a quarterback should be, especially if that quarterback wants to stay on the field for the entire season. Uh, The Saints' pass rush was non-existent, even with Vilma and Will Smith back in the lineup. We'll talk about that story momentarily in our second down segment. I don't think the Saints' pass rush will be awful all year. If Jonathan Vilma and Will Smith stay on the field, I doubt that. But if for some reason they do, the Saints pass rush will obviously be much better. It has to be better. It looked atrocious on Sunday. But RG3 has the talent. He certainly does. We knew that going in. He has the raw ability. But he has the mentality too. That was a big game for him on Sunday. Going into New Orleans, that kind of environment. And he led the Redskins to the 40-32 victory. Mike Shanahan can mold Robert Griffin III into the quarterback he wants to make him. It's going to be a fun year in Washington with RG3. He's going to make mistakes. That's inevitable, especially in that division. But he showed on Sunday he can stand up to the challenge. He doesn't just have the talent. He has the mental talent, too, which would take it back to a Peyton Manning commentary earlier in the segment, that's what separates the very good quarterbacks, From the elite quarterbacks. In today's NFL especially. A few things to look for. As we near week two. Andrew Luck's final numbers. Not nearly as impressive as RG3's. Going 23 of 45. 309 yards, one touchdown, and three interceptions. So week two, we're looking for improvement from Andrew Luck. The Colts had a great preseason. Many, including myself, thought they were further along in the rebuilding process than they probably are. Uh, They have a rookie quarterback there, a lot of changes on the O-line, the center, right guard, right tackle, all new starters, and any offensive line that goes through a transition like that is going to struggle at times. And the Colts offensive line certainly struggled mightily against Chicago pass rush on Sunday. Um, so Andrew Luck was under pressure all game long. That's why you saw the uh, you know the 22 incompletions, the three interceptions. Uh, one of those interceptions came when Luck heaved the ball downfield, expecting a uh, you know expecting a free play. He thought he was going to get a flag. He didn't. So you know another one hit off receiver's hands. So I don't put a lot of stock into the final numbers for Luck. He did struggle. But the offensive line was wretched. No quarterback's going to do well with a battle line. Uh, The Colts do play the Jaguars next week, who have a worse pass rush than the Bears, obviously. So maybe luck will have better luck. Oh, don't you like how I did that? No, that's something to look out for, though, certainly, as we near week two. Now, it'd be difficult to imagine the Jets having better luck or playing any better than they did this past Sunday against Buffalo, scoring 48 points. On the Bills this past Sunday afternoon, Mark Sanchez tossed three touchdown passes two to rookie wideout Stephen Hill and one to Jeremy Curley. Sean Green had a big game running the football as well and the offensive line held up against Mario Williams, though I put a lot of blame on that for Mario Williams. But maybe the biggest play of the game for the Jets did not come on the offensive side of the football and instead came on the defensive side of the football when Darrell Revis in the first quarter, it was a blowout, but at that point, that's still a big play. It was a close game in the first quarter. Sanchez threw the wretched interception so, you know, the Jets got down People said I was watching the game with a Jets fan. Oh no, here we go. Here's Sanchez making another awful decision. Give me another long game. Give me Tebow after the first interception. But Sanchez recovered, played well, and then the defense stepped up, made a big play too. Darrell Revis in the first quarter, jumped a route, made a great interception. That's a play that only Darrell Revis can make. Uh, oh, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. It was great to watch if you were a Jets fan. Sanchez played great. Revis with that great interception and only Drew Revis can make. Rex Ryan looked lean and mean and in control on the sidelines. But wait a minute. It was against the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills. Who I did pick to win 10 games last week in my season preview. I know. But I'm already down on them. Alright? I mean, Mario Williams didn't show up at all last week. It's still a Chan Gailey coach team. The Bills suck, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm already selling on the Bills. The Jets play the Steelers next week on the road in Pittsburgh following a tough week one loss. James Harrison may be back for Pittsburgh as well. And you know, he won't disappear like Mario Williams did last week. I'm curious to see how the Jets fare in Pittsburgh, and I'm also curious to see how the Jets hold up when things don't go well this season because they inevitably will not go well at some point. They will lose a game. They will lose several games. Mark Sanchez will have a bad game. He will have several bad games. And then how will the Jets respond to the pressure? How will the Jets respond to the media scrutiny? How will they respond to the situation when the situation gets rough? It's something they couldn't do last season, and that's why they finished 8-8 eight and eight and out of the playoffs. It's easy to act all high and mighty and confident when you just scored 48 points against a divisional opponent. And the defense played great, and the quarterback played great as well. No talk of Tim Tebow this week. But how about next week in Pittsburgh if Mark Sanchez gets sacked four times and throws three interceptions? You know a performance like that is coming. It has to come. Then how will the Jets respond? That's what I'm looking forward to seeing. And we may get a glimpse of that as early as this Sunday when they travel to Pittsburgh for the Steelers' home opener. Can the Ravens and Cowboys keep it up? Both had big wins over divisional rivals this past week, and both quarterbacks impressed. Ray Lewis had 11 tackles in Terrell Suggs' absence, and Ed Reed had an interception too. Can the Ravens eke another big year out of both Ray Lewis and Ed Reed? That would go a long way towards making up for Suggs' absence on the defensive side of the ball. Joe Flacco put up 40-plus points in a hurry-up offense. I like the installation of the hurry-up offense about time Baltimore evolved their offensive game. We'll talk more about that in the third down segment. This comes down to the question, how confident are you on Joe Flacco? How confident are you with Joe Flacco, I should say? He has a big arm. He can throw it downfield. But it goes back to our argument when you separate the good QBs from the elite QBs. Does Joe Flacco have that mental component in a game that you have to win? Are you picking Joe Flacco or another QB in that division, Ben Roethlisberger? I'm still picking Ben Roethlisberger. A big win this week against Cincinnati, who looked flat. The defense was awful. The secondary was atrocious. Guys uncovered down the field all game long from the Bengals. So surprised to see that out of them, but maybe not. It is the Bengals, though they did make the playoffs last year. But is Joe Flacco going to consistently put up these performances, or are we going to see a dud this week from Flacco? He needs to be more consistent. That what separates the great ones from just the good ones. We'll see if Flacco can be consistent. We'll see if he can keep it up. Are the Packers going to have another atrocious season defensively? Speaking of leaving guys uncovered, uh, yeah, you might want to cover Randy Moss in the red zone. Just a tip. uh, The Packers also gave up 186 yards on the the ground against the 49ers this week as well. Uh, The Packers are not going to go deep into the playoffs this year if the defense is atrocious once again. And they were awful against San Francisco. Leaving guys uncovered allowing 186 yards on the ground, not good. That's a defense that features Jay Cutler, Matthew Stafford, quarterbacks who can make plays. Adrian Peterson seems to be healthy, so it has running backs who can run, along with Matt Forte as well. There's a lot of offensive firepower in that NFC North, and if the Packers can't contain anybody or anything, they may be the odd team out in that division. They could be. I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't bet on it. But a defensive performance like that certainly is not encouraging. And I think the biggest thing to look out for in Week 2, we saved the best for last here in Football Nation today, is this. Will the replacement officials make a call so egregious that the league can't ignore it? Yes, some NFL scribes who happened to work for ESPN and broadcast affiliates, broadcast partners, ooh, funny how that works, are saying that the replacement officials actually weren't that bad this week and actually called pretty good games on the whole. Yeah, they made mistakes, but the real officials make mistakes too. Well, oh, didn't even notice. Um, I hate that argument. I absolutely despise that argument. And here's why. Yes. The real referees do make mistakes. Sometimes they get the calls wrong. But do you know where they never make mistakes? The real referees? They never make mistakes when it comes to managing the game. And that's something replacement officials do not know how to do at all. The biggest example of that, of course, is the Seattle-Arizona game. When they granted the Seahawks a fourth timeout when the Seahawks didn't have one. Seattle took their last timeout just three plays earlier. The officials that an explanation of this mistake lied and said because it was an incomplete pass on that play, where Seattle called their original third timeout, there was no timeout charged. It was due to an injury. Well, Mike Pereira in the Fox NFL Boots said no, that's wrong. The rules state even if the clock is stopped, if it's inside two minutes and a player gets injured, the team has to take an injury timeout if they have a timeout to spare. And the Seahawks had a timeout to spare. That injury timeout three plays earlier should have been their final timeout. The officials screwed it up and then lied when trying to explain their error. And luckily for the NFL, Braylon Edwards dropped a pass in the corner of the end zone. Because if Edwards had caught that pass, the officials granting Seattle a fourth timeout would have been the difference in that game. And I can guarantee you if that was the case, we would have real referees on the field as soon as this week. Because it's going to happen. The replacement officials are scheduled through week five. And it's going to happen one of these weeks. It may even happen this week. The replacement officials don't know how to run a game. And it's going to cost a team a game. It's going to cost a team a win. Which could be the difference between making the playoffs and missing the playoffs at the end of December. So it's not knowing how to run a game. I mean, yeah, some calls were inconsistent. There's no, fl- you know, there's no consistency from crew to crew. For example, there were six penalties in total in the Tennessee-New England game, but then 23 were called in a Washington-New Orleans game. So each crew calls the game dramatically differently from, from the other crews. So there's no consistency in the officiating, which must be maddening for coaches and players in terms of preparation. You don't know what's going to be called. I thought receivers were getting mugged on the hole. Uh, You're going to see defensive linemen and offensive linemen playing incredibly physically with each other, knowing they can get away with a lot of of things. Injuries could be up. Um, But again, running the game is the biggest issue. Want to know another big mistake? The Denver-Pittsburgh game only had 59 minutes played. Yeah, the 60th minute disappeared into thin air. After the Broncos scored a touchdown and they went for the two-point conversion, the officials stopped to run, uh, didn't remember to stop running the clock. So a minute just disappeared into thin air. Didn't make a difference in that game. It was an 11-point game, but in a close game, yeah, you can guarantee you that lost minute would have been a big talking point on Monday morning. Uh, in the Chicago, in the Chicago game, Chicago did in the uh, Chicago game, Chicago Indianapolis, Jay Cutler had to call a timeout. Because the referees forgot to reset the play clock. Again, it came in the first quarter. Didn't make a difference. Bears still won by 20-plus. But what if that happened in the fourth quarter, when the referees forgot to reset the play clock? And then a team had to use its final timeout to reset the play clock. And San Francisco Green Bay. They called an atrocious game, inconsistent calls all afternoon long, but... The most egregious example, they called an illegal block in the back on San Francisco, even though the 49ers were uh, the kicking team. Deadspin.com the 21 worst errors by the replacement officials over the weekend. I encourage you read it. Philadelphia, Cleveland, it took them six minutes to discuss a play that ultimately was not reviewable. Uh, they don't know the rules. or They don't know the rules well enough. Yeah, I know. The real referees miss calls. Yep, they do. Mm-hmm. You're right, they do. But, the real, but do the real referees ever give a team a timeout late in the fourth quarter in the red zone that they, that, that team doesn't have? Do the real referees uh, make games last 59 minutes instead of 60 because that minute just vanished into thin air? Do real referees not reset the play clock? Do real referees not know the rules when it comes to challenges? No, they know how to run a game. These replacement goons do not. It's not just the calls on the field. It's running the game. And these referees do not know how to run a game. And it almost cost a team a win this week. It almost cost Arizona a win. If Brown Edwards was able to come down with that catch. The NFL escaped one this week. They may not be so lucky this upcoming week. We'll see. Time for our second-down segment where we discuss the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. And this week, of course, is the news that the suspensions of Saints players Jonathan Vilma, Will Smith, Anthony Hargrove, and now Browns linebacker Scott Fujita were overturned. Yes, the Bounty Gate players' suspensions were overturned. Now, let me first say, I respect the hell out of Jonathan Vilma for taking the fight to the NFL and winning a battle against the National Football League. You can guarantee yourself that Jonathan Vilma will not be seen on any NFL telecasts once his playing career ends. You can guarantee yourself that Jonathan Vilma may not even see himself in any coaching staffs once his playing career ends because he has taken it to Roger Goodell and the National Football League, something that few players have the guts to do. So just on that basis alone... The gravitas perspective, if you will. I respect the hell out of Jonathan Vilma for taking the fight to the NFL and continuing that fight. I respect guys who stand their ground, even when they're wrong. And Jonathan Vilma, though I respect him for standing his ground, is still wrong here. And he may have won a battle, but he won't win the war. Roger Goodell will suspend Vilma again. They're scheduled to meet early next week in New York, and... Vilma's not going to play this entire season. He's not. Goodell's going to suspend Vilma again. He's not going to let this one slip by. He's going to suspend Vilma on something he definitely has jurisdiction over, such as conduct detrimental to the game. Uh, It's really as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Roger Goodell is not going to let Jonathan Vilma win the war here. He's just not. They're going to meet early next week in New York. The Saints players are guilty. They're guilty of Bounty Gate. Did Bounty Gate happen? Yes. Did Jonathan Vilma and other Saints defenders have knowledge of it? Yes. Did they participate in the bounty scheme? Yes. Is there evidence of that? Yes. Is the conduct detrimental to the game? Yes. Thus, suspensions are warranted, and suspensions will be handed out. Didn't happen this time, but it will happen again. Maybe as soon as early next week when Vilma and Goodell meet in New York. But again, I do respect the hell out of Jonathan Vilma for continuing to take the fight to the league even when he is wrong and he is wrong here he is guilty and should be punished for it and will ultimately be punished for it just under a different just under different grounds time for our third down segment it's the big up slow down where i say a statement and then say big up or slow down big up means agreement slow down means disagreement here we go The Baltimore Ravens went to a no-huddle this season. You saw it in Week 1 as Joe Flacco and the offense put up 40-plus points against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Falcons opened things up as well and scored 40-plus points in their game. Matty Ryan showing his gun. Big up or slow down? Teams are going to these hurry-up offenses, giving quarterbacks free reign. So big up or slow down? You must be an elite passing team to win in today's NFL. Big up. Unfortunately, that's the case. I wish it weren't the case. I wish complete teams won. I wish complete offenses won. But that's not the case, especially so in the regular season. The only Super Bowl team since 2006 to win that didn't have an elite quarterback was the Giants in 2007. Notice I didn't say the Giants in 2011, because last year, of course, Eli Manning was an elite quarterback. No doubt about it. But Peyton Manning won in 06. Roethlisberger in 08, who's an elite winner. And yes, you can be an elite winner. Drew Brees won in 09. Aaron Rodgers won in 2010. Eli Manning won in 2011 and beat Tom Brady. The league has been heading in that direction now for the past five years. In this season, it is fully in that direction. The Ravens were one of the last teams to transform themselves. Go to the high-flying aerial attack. Go to the hurry-up offense. But they did. Ray Rice is now a the big, a bigger threat in the passing game than he is in the running game. Why? Because that's the direction the league is going in. A guy like Ray Rice is more useful in the passing game than in the running game. Same with the Atlanta Falcons. They're a team who had thrown the ball heavily over the past couple years, but they needed to open it up more. They have a new offensive coordinator in there, and what happened? You saw Matt Ryan to Julio Jones. Expect to see more of that. Tony Gonzalez going deep down the seams as well as as the tight end. You need to throw the ball and throw the ball well to win in today's NFL, especially in the regular season. And a team like the Ravens were the last team to recognize that, but they've recognized it. They've transformed. The league is changing. I don't think necessarily for the good, but it's changing. And the Ravens' changing to the hurry-up offense is one of the last signs, I think, any holdouts need to recognize that it is no longer the NFL of yesteryear. It's no longer the NFL of ten years ago when Brad Johnson can win a Super Bowl. Nope. The league has changed. And it's changed for the long term. Pass, pass, pass. Quarterback Jay Cutler with Screen Bay Packers secondary members. Good luck for the game tomorrow night. And when talking about physical play, Brendan Marshall said, I do welcome that. The Bears are talking trash. Big Upper, slow down. This kind of trash talking early on in the season is smart. It's entertaining. I love it. But I say slow down. Because it's only after week one. Trash talking after a win is fine. Trash talking later in the season is fine when you've proven it after more than one week. But it isn't wise to give your opponents any more bulletin board material than necessary. It's the Packers' home opener. They're coming off a disappointing loss in San Francisco against the 49ers. Bears are coming off a big win. Packers have enough motivation already before Jay Cutler and Brandon Marshall open up their big mouths. If the Bears win tomorrow night at Lambeau Field and the Packers' defense looks atrocious once again, even though it's early in the season, a huge message could be sent to Green Bay, who would be 0-2 and a very tough NFC North, as we said earlier. With a win, the Bears can send a big message to the Packers, their pals up north. And then you can talk all the trash you want. But Jay Cutler and Brandon Marshall should not give the Packers any more motivation than necessary heading into the game tomorrow night. And they did with those comments earlier this week. Adrian Peterson. Scored two touchdowns on 17 carries and 84 yards on Sunday. And the Vikings' overtime win over Jacksonville. Blair Walsh is now Minnesota's favorite son. Big up or slow down. Peterson's performance was the biggest surprise performance of the weekend. I say big up here. I was surprised Peterson was even out there for the full game. 17 carries, 84 yards, two touchdowns. He looked elusive, running between the tackles. Showed no fear on in the red zone. The Vikings gave it to him in the red zone with the two touchdowns. Obviously, uh, coming off the MCL and ACL tears, which he tore late last September, late last December, on you know around the holidays. Uh, he's back here in early September, and he's making an impact for the Minnesota Vikings. They threw him out there, and they threw him out there for the full game, and Peterson looked great. And the biggest thing for me was he wasn't just dipping and dunking to the outside. The Vikings weren't pulling him in the red zone, weren't pulling him close to the goal line. No, they gave him the ball in the red zone. They gave him the rock 17 times. He ran in between the tackles and looked as elusive as ever. Uh, Adrian Peterson had a big game on Sunday, and big up. Absolutely the most surprising performance of the weekend. Good to see that. Time for the fourth down segment to finish out this show. It's time for the Reamer rant. What could I possibly be upset about? NFL football has begun. We finally have real games to talk about. What could I be upset about? I have something. Commercials. What about commercials, Alex? Too many of them. Did you watch the... That's a stupid question. When you were watching the game Wednesday night, Giants-Cowboys last week, or Sunday night football, or Monday night football, but NBC especially so, in the Wednesday night and Sunday night games. Tell me what you thought about the flow of the game, on the telecast. Tell me what you thought about watching the second half of those games, especially Cowboys-Giants the season opener. What was that? It resembled an NBA game in the fourth quarter? Yeah, it most certainly did. Kickoff, commercial break. Timeout, commercial break. Another timeout, commercial break. TV timeout. Oh, gotta get that in there. Don't get enough timeouts. Two-minute warning. Commercial break. Another timeout. Commercial break. Kickoff. Commercial break. Punt. Commercial break. Commercial break every series. Multiple commercial breaks every series. That's the worst, right? Touchdown. Extra point. Commercial break. Kickoff. Commercial break. Two plays. Critical third down. Timeout. Commercial break. Punt. Commercial break. It's absurd. It's ruining the flow of the game. Watching the fourth quarter of a primetime NFL game is like watching the fourth quarter of a primetime NBA game. It sucks. It couldn't go slower. I understand the NFL wants to make its money. And advertisers pay big money to be involved in the National Football League, especially in primetime. So how about this? How about taking a play from the other football's book? The English Premier League puts advertisements on the jerseys. Why not do that? And don't give me this, oh, well, the sanctity of the jersey would be ruined. Really? The sanctity of the jersey? You're right. You know what? Let's keep the uniforms the way they are. Not any, no, No logos whatsoever on the field or on the jerseys. And let's just keep running commercials a million times in the fourth quarter. You know, let's make an NFL fourth quarter take 45 minutes to complete. Let's do that. Right. That's a better plan. I'd rather look at a clean, spanking clean uniform than, you know, than, you, know, you know, than, you know, you know, than, than, have to deal with any commercials on and actually enjoy my fourth quarter. Please. It's too much. Too many commercials. It disrupts the flow of the game. It's like watching an NBA game. And that's not a good thing. Also, also, as it pertains to Wednesday Night Football, what was up with the opening act? Queen Latifah singing the National Anthem? Really? The NFL doesn't have pull? To get anybody better than Queen Latifah? and no doubt? What is this, 1999? No doubt? Faith Hill singing the Sunday Night Football opening. The music at Rockefeller Center. Not even... In the Meadowlands. An off-site <laughs> music performance before the game. The NFL is selling out a little bit. They are. They're selling out. I mean, Really. Rockefeller Center is the site of the pregame show? Give me my football. But that I can bear. I can bear that. Why? Because I can avoid that. I don't have to watch Queen Latifah. I don't have to watch a No Doubt reunion. I don't have to watch the live concert series from Rockefeller Plaza. Like I'm watching the Today Show when I'm supposed to be watching NFL football. I can avoid that. But I can't avoid all the commercials in the fourth quarter. Which now takes 45 flipping minutes to complete! Take a page out of the other football's book. Put some ads on the jerseys. It may disrupt the sanctity of the uniform, but it won't disrupt your fourth quarter. And if you ask me, if given a choice between the two, I take the latter, 10 times out of 10. The latter as in not disrupting the fourth quarter. In case you didn't get my point, the fourth quarter takes a bit too much long, too much disruption for my liking. I told you this would be a place where we gave opinions. Hopefully these opinions spur some discussion. Hopefully these opinions entertained you. As always, feel free to interact with me and other listeners of the show on the show page on footballnation.com. On Twitter, alexreamer1 is my Twitter handle. areamer at bu.edu is my email address. We'll also bring on guests regularly throughout the season as well. Put in some of their commentary with mine. Should be a good time here every Wednesday. Football Nation Today podcast on footballnation.com. So long. Enjoy the games this weekend. We'll talk to you next Wednesday right here on footballnation.com for some Week 2 analysis.